Welcome back to another episode of the Maroon Weekly, our 101st episode. Indeed. I'm Pravan. And I'm Jake. It's just the two of us here this week. Choman is currently happening, whatever that means. It, it's, a, it's a big event, so good luck to everyone moderating and doing think tank stuff and, and delegates as well. <laughs> good luck to all of them. This week, we'll start with Pravan, who has an update on another one of this campus's unions. Yes, as you all know, the graduate students have, have unionized as of the last month. But uh, this article is on the non-tenure track faculty union, which voted to unionize in 2015 and began an affiliation with the Service Employees International Union, or the SEIU for short, as part of the Faculty Forward Initiative, which is happening here in Chicago and in other universities nationally. There are many reasons behind unionization, such as demand for more pay, low job security from quarter to quarter, and lack of structured performance reviews for professors. The collective bargaining agreements, or CBAs, took a lot of time and and organizational effort to negotiate, but according to instructional professors in the union, they provided all of these benefits. The professors that were interviewed for the article support the recent unionization of the graduate students at the university, which should begin its own series of negotiations in the coming months. The article by Justin Walgren is available on the Maroon website. I didn't even know that non-tenure track faculty here had a union. Yeah, um, me neither. It's certainly an important issue. I, I'm well aware that the pay and the conditions for non-tenure track faculty nationally are quite poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big reason why people are sort of scared to become academics, because there's only so many tenure track positions. And I think um, an increasingly large proportion of courses nationally have been taught by people who don't have the same pay, don't have the same um, work guarantees who are not tenure track. And it, it's great that unionization is happening for those groups. Yeah, and it seems like, uh, I guess, people have had their doubts about whether the the graduate student union would really provide the benefits that it, that people are saying they would. And mm. if we look at this as an example case, then maybe those, those doubts seem to be dispelled, right? Because all the professors that are interviewed for this article seem very happy with how the union has turned out. Yeah. And uh, obviously they're like in solidarity with, with the grad students. And it seems like one of the professors who was interviewed was making the point that it would like when there's like a more harmony, I guess, between, um, between professor to professor and professor to grad student. And when there's more, I guess um, there's less to like hate about your job, I suppose Mm. it, (laughs) provides like a much more cohesive and better university culture. Um, and the professor who uh, who was talking about, who we'll actually hear about later for another story, um, he he believes that it ha- it'll have like very big long-term implications. That's great. Yeah, I do wonder what portion of um, universities nationally have unionized for um, non-tenure track faculty. Something to look into. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess from last week we, uh, we had, uh, you did bring up that statistic with other universities, grad students unionizing as well, and I, I would imagine that it's similar for non-tenure track faculty, but I, I wouldn't know. That's just a guess. Yeah. Next, we'll move to a report from me on the university's new forum for free inquiry. So according to a uni- an announcement, rather, from President Olivi Satos, the university will launch the Forum for Free Inquiry in the fall of 2023. 
The announcement said that the forum will expand and enhance the university's engagement across the constellation of issues related to free inquiry and expression in collaboration with faculty and the broader university community. The announcement was light on specifics, but it does mark yet another symbol of the university planting its flag in support of free expression, a position that we've become well known for nationally. In 2014, former President Bob Zimmer put together a Committee on Freedom of Expression to draft a statement that would articulate the university's commitment to free expression. The statement ended up emphasizing free discourse as an essential element of the university's culture. And it argued that the university has a responsibility to not only, quote, promote a lively and fearless freedom of debate and deliber deliberation, but also to protect that freedom when others attempt to restrict it. Now, that statement became known as the Chicago Principles. The university's decision to publish them was noted nationally, especially in the context of controversy around students at school attempting to prevent controversial speakers from speaking on their campuses. 98 other universities have since committed to those or substantively similar principles, with the first being Princeton in April of 2015. So UChicago establishing a forum for free inquiry is not exactly a shock, but marks just one more sign that they truly want to be a leader in free expression nationally, if that means anything at all. This article was originally reported by Sabrina Chain for the Chicago Maroon and is available on the Maroon's website. How do you feel about the university's outspoken support of free expression, Provin? I mean, I, I had, it seems like very, very, I guess as you say, like at the forefront of the minds of like several of the administra administration members. But I mean, I don't really know what it does. I, I like, I always feel very free to say whatever I want at the university, but I don't really know what the what the committee has like done. I don't know if, like, yeah, I, th that committee was just formed temporarily to draft that statement, is my understanding. Right. Okay. Um, and obviously, we don't know what this forum is going to do um, just yet. I don't know. Maybe, I guess I did go, I did go to a talk recently at the law school about um, like academic freedom comparing the, the U.S. And, and India. And yeah. there, was some, there were some interesting points. I, I guess it was a little over my head, but I think it was, yeah, it was an example of how, like, we, all, we really like to sort of talk about how much we can talk about things. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. It's, I guess it's just, it's not something that I, I tend to think about a lot because I sort of, like, take it for granted. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. I do, I do sometimes wonder how different we would feel if we were somewhere else. Like, there, there are plenty of universities where students, I think, genuinely don't feel quite as empowered to speak their minds. Um, but at the same time, there are certain connotations that come with this, like, overemphasis on freedom of expression, certain connotations that I don't know that we always want to be known for. Like, mm -hmm. um, I think UChicago has a reputation as being a more conservative school in part Indeed. because of the Chicago principles. Um, I mean, that's just one component of it. There's, you know, the Chicago School of Economics, all sorts of things. But um, I believe it was 2016 when the university sent something to students emphasizing that they didn't support like trigger warnings or safe spaces like that's pretty clearly putting your you know putting your flag down and saying that you don't support all of the like pushes that are happening in higher education towards protecting people in those ways and making sure that people's feelings are validated the, the university is sort of trying to show that they won't, don't want to move in that direction maybe you want to move in a separate direction um, which is interesting I don't, I'm sure it 
there are plenty of students for whom that feels alienating. Um, but uh, I'm interested to see what this forum for free inquiry does with itself. Yeah. I'd never heard of the, I, I didn't know about the uh, trigger warning safe space sort of stance that the university had. But um, yeah, I, that, I guess that does change a little bit of my like sort of general sort of aspect of campus life in a way. But yeah, we'll see, we'll see what the forum does. Maybe, maybe we're speaking too soon. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to follow. I'll take the next article on how professors are trying to wrestle with the widespread use of OpenAI's ChatGPT in classrooms and the potential increase in cheating as a result. Political science professor Ruth Block Rubin notes that a common solution to addressing AI-abetted cheating is to assign fewer take-home exams and papers, but she believes that this limits students' learning opportunities. She's attempted to circumvent ChatGPT by using more fictional situations in her essay prompts, which can make it harder to wrangle the right answer out of the AI. Computer science professor Borja Sotomayor similarly believes using ChatGPT undermines students' ability to learn and apply programming principles, especially in intro classes. He thinks its use should be very limited, but not entirely banned, remarking that the chatbot is often used in professional settings after college. Sotomayor and executive director of the Chicago Center for Teaching and Learning, Robin Page, agree that the incentive to cheat, which is the singular focus on grades and getting A's, specifically, is much more important to break down than the cheating mechanism. Page argues that this can be solved by increasing student engagement and, quote, encouraging authentic learning in classes, being transparent about learning goals and providing lots of feedback on assignments, for example. This article by Naina Poroshotamon is available on the Maroon website. There's a lot of fascinating issues that come up when you think about ChatGPT in relation to education and in relation to pretty much anything else you could think of. Um, and it's sort of funny the, the way that some of those professors um, constructed their answers talk, uh, talking about like common strategies to avoid like people cheating with chat GPT or how it's often used in professional settings. This, this technology is, is new like in terms of having the public access to it in terms of being this developed. It's new and I, I just don't think we know what like common strategies are will be everything so in flux right now. Yeah, I, I guess those seem those are more like guesses yeah, of like because it's it, it seems kind of intuitive that you don't want students to be like on on their computers at home. You don't trust them enough to like not look up an answer on ChatGPT or when when you uh, like maybe I guess when when we go into the workplace or when like, you know, our p- students our age end up graduating and taking these jobs a lot of. I would imagine a lot of the uh, like grunt work sort of ends up going to the AI because they can do it well. So I like I can imagine just like in like some computer science related job, you can just something that you would have to do by hand. Now you would end up just going to an AI saying do this and it'll spit out some code and you can just use the code. Yeah, I think some like you know early studies have indicated that a lot white collar workers are made like significantly more efficient if they make an effort to integrate ChatGPT into what they do. And I, I think we'll see that prompt engineering, like figuring out the right thing to say to get the right responses, mm-hmm. is going to be really important in the coming years. Um, I have one class where, we, where we've actually talked about like how we should use ChatGPT. It's yeah. a stats class, STAT 224, Applied Regression Analysis with um, Professor Burbank. And she said that she's part of I don't remember what the term was. Some sort of like 
focus group in the university with professors who are looking into how they think ChatGPT will impact education, how we can address it right now. And she asked us for our opinions on how we think um, we should be allowed to use it, what how we should like disclose its use, what what boundaries we should set, um, and how professors should respond generally. And and one student said that yeah, like homework should be less of the grade because it you know it means less because anyone mm-hmm. can just use ChatGPT. But she shut that down pretty immediately, and everyone else in the class didn't really approve of this answer because you don't want to like de-emphasize the at home work you don't yeah. want to like remove any grade relationship there um you still want to have like the right priorities and how you educate you just have to like sort of integrate this other thing maybe um it's interesting i, I don't know i like the, the we should have less papers because chat gpt can write papers answer that seems naive to me yeah um yeah i think we have to find find a way to preserve our like educational ideals while having this other technology exist in the world. Um, but I, part of the answer we came up with in this class was that if you're, like, coding in R, which is part of the class, but not, like, like we don't they don't teach us how to code in R. There's just things we have to do in R. I've never really used R before this quarter. She said that we can ask ChatGPT to, like, figure out R code for us and just maybe write down, like, I use ChatGPT to yeah. graph this curve. Yeah. Professor Sotomayor in the article said said a very similar thing, which was... You can like ask, you can ask ChatGPT for specific functions like how does this particular I don't know like module work, but you can't like ask it to do your whole project for you. Yeah, like I think that seems that seems pretty fair to me, um, and yeah, I think it does it does sort of like speak to like educational priorities as you said, and sort of how and it's not like unique to U Chicago at all like. Uh, no, every not. every school in the country is facing this issue, I'm sure. Um, and I guess like how how we respond to it is going to be like kind of indicative of, of like where we like what we value in terms of like education. Yeah, and it's it's hard to even fathom how the technology will will develop in like the next decade. Yeah, I was thinking like it's like we should develop a solution that doesn't specifically target like this AI because the ARs are just going to get better. Yeah, like, next no, hundred percent, hundred percent. Next year, there there might be there might be something that OpenAI puts out that's even um, like even more powerful. And um, Professor Block Rubin was like, it's it's easy to tell it's it's harder to tell apart ChatGPT from work from mediocre work than it is to tell apart ChatGPT and good work. Yeah, and that makes sense. But I'm thinking. Soon it might be hard for both of those. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. It is. It is a very, very uh, pertinent discussion that um, that everyone's going to be keeping tabs on. Yeah, there, there was like GPT four came out. I don't know if yeah. you've heard about this. It's, it's currently like behind a subscription. Uh, you have to pay like twenty bucks a month to OpenAI. I think it is to be able to use it, but. The, what I've seen indicates that, yeah, it's better than GPT-3, the, the one that's still available online for everyone, but it's not that much better. Like, the difference, it's it's plateaued a bit. Um, I don't understand quite enough about the underlying technology to know what might let them, you know, make another tr- real leap. But I think part of the leap might just be, like, living in a world where even the current technology can be, like, well integrated with everything we do, like with Google search. Um, I think... Searching things is going to be totally 
a different experience mm-hmm. um, in just a, maybe a couple years um, as we figure out how to integrate AI properly. Like not infrequently, if I want some information, like ChatGPT will give me a better answer than using Google and maybe adding the word Reddit to the end to get like a real answer instead of some SEO farming something or other. Yeah. Next, we're going to go back to me with a report on um, a recent forum right here at the Logan Center. So last Thursday night, uh, March 30th, here at the Logan Center, Chicago mayoral candidates Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis debated public safety and education and placed forth their visions of what the city of Chicago needs and can be. The forum was moderated by WBEZ's Sasha Ann Simons and was hosted by our own Institute of Politics. Vallis and Johnson are the two candidates who advanced to the April 4th runoff vote. Vallis received much more of the vote in that February election where he advanced, but polling indicates that Brandon Johnson has pulled close to him and that the race is certainly too close to call. Now, I haven't been especially plugged into this mayoral election cycle, but I have heard that Vallis is a moderate Democrat who was once actually a Republican and has run on a platform emphasizing public safety, while Brandon Johnson is a progressive who, among other things, has pushed for investment in public schools. And these themes could be seen in this debate, where the two largely stuck to their guns. When asked about safety in schools, Vallis said that he believes police officers should be at the entrances of schools. He also said that his opponent wants to defund the police, which Johnson denied vehemently, decrying that as a Republican talking point. When asked about school safety, Johnson said that schools should have a more robust presence of social workers, counselors, therapists, and psychiatrists. His answer didn't immediately mention cops. In their closing statements, Vallis said that public safety is a human right, echoing the emphasis he made all night and, you know, throughout this election cycle and his campaign on reducing crime. And Johnson said that, and I quote, we cannot go back to the old politics. He argued that his community has built a, quote, multicultural, multigenerational movement calling for a better, stronger, safer Chicago. For more information on this forum and more statements from the candidates, please check out Austin Zeglis' article on the Chicago Maroon website. I'm sure if, if Will were here, he would have a lot more to say on this uh, than, than I would. But uh, yeah, it seems it it seems like uh, this was a this was a great event. I, I wish I could have gone to it because not often do you get the chance to see like both of the candidates for like you know for like pretty big office actually. Like Chicago's the third largest city in the country. Yeah, and, yeah, and it was right in our backyard, yeah, right, 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 right here, here in the Logan Center. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I it was. Uh, I keep like reminding myself to like go to more IOP events. Like yeah. once I, I, I was just, uh, I was in the IOP building at the same time that Beto O'Rourke was there. <laughs> he was, he was giving a talk and I somehow I, I was, I was there, but I wasn't like at the event. I, mm. I was doing something else there. I don't remember what it was, but um, it's just things like this. And we'd be, I guess side chat is blowing up about Bernie Sanders being on campus. <laughs> right. Yeah. We miss Bernie. Yeah, uh, neither of us were able to see Bernie personally, but um, yeah, just figures like this and like just being able to to vote in the mayoral election are things that I haven't taken advantage of as much as I should have. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whose whose vision of Chicago wins out here. Um, Indeed, I think Brandon Johnson is. I mean, he, he'd get my vote. He's um, he has a more interesting vision for the city of Chicago. I don't think that the answer is just uh, getting more cops, but I understand why 
you know, in this particular city, uh, Paul Vallis might have some appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see who wins out. Um, speaking of Bernie, there was a post from the U Chicago track and field Instagram account. Uh, some of them, I guess, ran into him. And I learned that Bernie Sanders ran for the Chicago Maroons way back in the day. He ran yeah. a sub two minute 800, which for, for those listening is pretty damn fast. <laughs> yeah. J- Jake and I are both runners and uh, it's, it, it is, it is crazy to, to like see like that kind of like imagine, you know, Bernie in his twenties <laughs> just like speeding along. Young and, Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I'd, from um, from you know from when he was running for president, I, I knew that he ran in high school and that he had a four thirty something mile time uh, as a high schooler in Brooklyn, which is also very good. But I and I knew he went to U Chicago, but I hadn't I guess put those two things together. I didn't know he ran here, which is just funny to think about. Yeah, all I knew about was uh, was the sit-ins um, that he orchestrated during the nineteen sixties while he was a student here. Um, but yeah, today I learned. Today we learned. I, I believe he was in Chicago actually to um, to help out at a rally for Brandon Johnson that he went to the night before. Makes sense. We saw him here on campus, where he was supporting his candidacy for mayor. And we have one last story, Brava. Yep. U Chicago's Department of South Asian Languages and Civilizations has announced the South Asian Languages and Translation Project, or SALT for short. The project will allocate funding and translation training towards translating more literature in South Asian languages. According to their website, just 1% of translated literature in American markets comes from this region. SALT is funded by an anonymous donor and is set to begin July 1st. The article by Austin Zeglis is available on the Maroon website. I I, I am really excited to to see this in action because I... I have I've read a good deal of modern South Asian literature, but yeah. all of it has been in English, um, and it's it's a gap in my knowledge that I'm excited to fill, because not just because of like it's you know I'm from South Asia, my parents are from South Asia, and I visit fairly often, but there's just so much linguistic diversity. This this uh, project is going to be on not just India, but Pakistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan, Nepal, the Maldives, so many other countries that I know very little about and I'm excited to sort of interact with through through reading the literature. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully I look forward to seeing what they what they put out. Hopefully um there will be things that are accessible for students where we can easily yeah. take advantage of the, their work and their resources. I don't know if you've heard about this, Jake, but there is a petition going around to diversify humanities core curricula. Um like the, I think the first example that this petition cited was in um, HBC, Human Being and Citizen. Yeah. There was only one female author throughout the whole sequence, and it was in the optional third quarter of the sequence. Um, and uh, I, I assume that also goes to sort of uh, racial and uh, geographic lines as well. And hopefully this project could be of use to to Hume or to South Asian Civ, which which I'm, which is a pretty popular class as far as Civs go, um, and yeah, that that would be exciting. Uh, if if anything if anything interesting comes out of it, yeah, that, that hopefully there is that cross pollination where um, yeah. the things that come out of one university program help out another, um, help us to diversify the offerings. It is sort of an interesting question though, like whether 
whether like diversifying HBC is important on some level. Mm-hmm. Diversifying our offerings is certainly important. We do have um, what's what are some of the, the Humes? I took HBC myself. Like world cultures is that the reading readings reading cultures readings reading cultures lit. readings and world lit. There are options there if that's what you're looking for, which is is true for plenty of people. And there's wonderful texts in that. Mm-hmm. HBC I think tries to speak to the Western canon, which you know, is based on a history of a time when there were not (laughs) the same, like, diverse creations, which is, uh, you know, time and place. Obviously, things were being created all over. But um, the, the, you know, the ancient texts, the the great books, all these things are from eras where the same priorities do not exist. And I I think there's intrinsic value in you know, in, in any of them, in learning about those texts that influenced people from way back when, texts that, you know, influenced Thomas Jefferson, whatever, the same stuff that those people would have been reading way back when. There's there's value in being able to read that now. We probably should have more diversity even in HBC. Um, but it's, it's something worth thinking about, like how we, I don't know, how we construct all that. Yeah, there are just so many books out there and so many lessons to learn. And I do not envy having to, like, with the <laughs> curriculum and yeah the, that's that that is that is a very daunting and hard task it, like if i was teaching i would i would i don't know how like i would sort of choose a book knowing that some other book was left aside yeah yeah certainly but yeah professors do it every quarter they manage they yeah. figure it out um yeah interestingly the the u chicago representative for the non-tenure track faculty union, Jason Grunbaum, is sort of is the director of the SALT project. He's a he's an instructional professor in the SALC department. Um, so, yeah, a little bit of a uh, little bit of a, a cameo. There you go. <laughs> That's our last report. Anything else, Provan? Uh, not not now. Uh, I guess we'll we'll see you next week. Thanks for for listening. See you next week.